Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sanghang namasami. The um, Namo Tassa that gets uh, chanted at the beginning of the Dhamma talk, unless you're intending to give Dhamma talks. Most welcome. <laughs> but uh, that's uh, what's happening there. Um, is that uh, it's the person who is um, uh, has been invited to to speak on the Dhamma? Um, you know, he sets the intention to uh, take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and uh, the um, saying the Namotasa is like. Uh, Recognizing the, the the Buddha as the teacher, and then Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami means um, I uh, pay homage to, I uh, pay respects to Buddha Dhamma and Sangha. So it's like uh, setting the intention for the person to to get out of the way and uh, to try and allow the the Dhamma to speak without too much interference. So um, so yeah, I. Uh, uh, just mention that so that you know you don't feel like you have to join in with the, with the namotas. I, I you know I appreciate people feel like they want to kind of do the right thing and you know plug in and you know it's also the fact that we don't always know what the right thing is and sometimes it, it's explained and sometimes it isn't and we just have to to guess. But uh, I thought I'd just um, pass that on so that people uh, are aware of the the form for that. Also, the little um, piece of, of Pali uh, that was uh, chanted before I began. So, you know, those of you who might not be familiar, it wasn't just sort of random retreatant, just sort of <laughs> overcome with some spontaneous verse in Pali or <laughs> channeling some Charlie cha- uh, Pali chanting devata from some other realm. But, um, it's a uh, Traditional way of uh, inviting the the Dhamma to be to be offered, uh, and uh, it's it's interesting that it's a a custom that you find still happening all throughout the, the Buddhist world um, in very similar forms, and it and it relates back to the the time immediately after the Buddha's enlightenment. And his recognition that uh, after the um, eons and eons of of development of the spiritual virtues, the paramitas, uh, lifetime after lifetime dedicated towards spiritual perfection, finally he'd reached complete uh, and unshakable deliverance and the full uh, development of of all of the uh, spiritual virtues. And uh, so his goal had finally been reached, and then um, uh, early on in that, there was a recognition that this is so subtle, this is uh, so abstruse, this insight that I've awakened to, this understanding that I've awakened to, that uh, you know, there's no point trying to explain this to anybody you know, after all this time all this effort, it's like no one's going to understand this. <laughs> and uh, also realizing that the world, that, that uh, people have their minds easily taken up with uh, worldly concerns, um, self-centered opinions and drives, um, or uh, attachment to particular ideas and beliefs and philosophies and sense of identity, and uh, he felt that uh, you know the world was just so committed to uh, 
those habits, being and becoming, that uh, that you know, if he tried to teach, it would just uh, quote uh, be uh, reap um, weariness, and um, it would be troublesome for him. So he was inclined not to not to even try teaching. But then, uh, as the story goes, one of the the Brahma gods, the Brahma Sahampati, who's a high-ranking Brahma deity, picked the, has a particular connection to to Buddha Dhamma. Picked this up through the ether, sort of up through the different realms. This this thought passing through the the mind of the newly awakened Buddha, sort of found its way through through the airwaves um, to Brahma Sahampati, and immediately <laughs> beamed down to earth. And uh, appeared in front of the Buddha, and said, yeah, "Indeed, the world is is uh, you know, well. The, the minds of, of people are and beings are clouded and and dusty, uh, filled with um, attachment to their ideas, to their plans, to their um, their loves and hates. Uh, uh, and uh, and yet." Even though that's true, there are some that have only got a little bit of dust in their eyes. And so, for the sake of those, please, uh, would you consider teaching, explaining, uh, expounding on the, the insight that you've uh, awakened to. So then, uh, it's said that the Buddha, having uh, fully developed psychic powers, was able to cast his vision around the world and to, to look into the minds of, of many people and he realized, yeah, well, yeah, Sahampati's right. There are people who have got a lot of dust in their eyes, but there are also some with just a little bit of dust in their eyes. So, for the sake of those, he said, okay, <laughs> I'll do what I can. And then for the next 45 years, um, he traveled uh, barefoot around the, the Ganges uh, plain of northeastern India, and uh, shared his understanding, his his wisdom, uh, as fully and completely as he could with uh, those who were interested, those who approached him and and sought out uh, teachings. And then all these years later, two thousand five hundred forty-seven years after his passing away, still reverberating down through the ages and across the planet, we are still the inheritors of that um, alarm call. To, uh, the Brahma Sahampati picked up, so that when a, um, a an occasion like this on a retreat, or, or when it's um, people wish to hear the Dhamma, then they uh, recite this verse, which um, recounts that same incident: Brahma Chaloka Dipati Sahampati, the Brahma God Sahampati, Lord of the Universe, um, and coming down, and, and it recounts that event and says, "So please, for the sake of those with a little dust in their eyes." Please teach the Dhamma. And as I uh, always like to say when I give this little spiel, it's like, you know, times are hard. And so that uh, there, are not that many, there are not that many Buddhas around. <laughs> and, uh, the, um, and the Brahma gods are even you know, getting thin on the ground <laughs> as well. Uh, but uh, in, the, um, in the same spirit uh, of... Uh, the teaching needing to be invited, uh, uh, invited forth, or being requested, then uh, we still sort of set up that, that that dynamic so that I don't presume that the world wants to know what I've got to say. <laughs> but then this gesture of invitation, please don't just sit there. <laughs> yeah, uh, if there's a help that can be given, please may it be given. So it always strikes me as a very beautiful little ritual and connects us all uh, through the ages to the, those who have called upon the, the Buddha and the, the Buddha's uh, disciples, the wise ones through the ages and how um, even after all this time extraordinary length of time we are the inheritors of that um, that you know the wisdom of the Buddha and that also that, that impulse. Also it's helpful to um, Set up the dynamic of uh, asking for the teaching, because you know that uh, you know what it, I think we all know what it's like when someone comes up and, and offers teaching to us <laughs> when we're not looking for it. Uh, you know when we we're brimming with the light, 
uh, or someone is brimming with the light and comes up to us and wants to, to share their teaching. I think uh, Ajahn Punadama was just describing on his journey back from the West Coast. Uh, maybe he'll share the, the account of it one of these evenings, but uh, sitting in a cafe in Duluth, Minnesota, heading back to Thunder Bay after having come across the country on a train and, and uh, some newly awakened being <laughs> came up to him in the cafe and, and uh, tried to enlighten him. I don't think it worked. Uh, no. <laughs> but, uh, he had not invited the teaching. So <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it creates a dynamic in us because the Buddha was aware that uh, you know, we only learn if there's a degree of openness. If I can stride up to you in the street and say, I've got something important to tell you, you might say, oh great, I was just thinking. <laughs> uh, but there might not be any openness. And then if there's no openness, if there's not even a gesture of, um, yes, I'm ready to learn, I need to learn. There are things I don't understand. My life can be guided in, in a skillful way. If there isn't that basic humility and openness, then uh, we never really learn. And so that uh, it's a very skillful uh, quality that's come down through Buddhist tradition over the ages that uh, almost without exception in, in Buddhist countries and Buddhist tradition is a, a non-proselytizing religion. So that if if people are, are interested, then there's an open door to come along and to listen, to learn, to practice. But... Um, we're not out uh, seeking converts and uh, promising you know, anything other than uh, knee pain. And no. <laughs> <laughs> Ten days of no conversation except with yourself. And no dinner. Well, a day has gone by. Um, It always strikes me, uh, particularly on the first day of a retreat, because of the shift from a a world of meeting people and traveling and engaging and so forth, then to a time of many hours spent uh, in internal reflection, looking inwards, um, focusing the mind. Uh, restraining the impulses to to sort of engage, converse, or to do. As this experience of of suddenly the the number of hours in the day multiplying. Probably a few of you noticed that. Like, how can one day be so much longer? So much longer than the day before. I mean, yesterday there wasn't enough time to do anything, and today. Take, 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 take. Oh my God, three minutes. are coming together and um, being on retreat in this way and uh, being with the, the hours as, uh, as they pass. You know, we've... There's been the encouragement to reflect on the, the, the changes that we experience. I mean, just now, and we, as we came together this evening, it was uh, the the light of uh, dusk and they could hear the the birds doing their evening good night songs shutting up for the evening settling down now night is uh, is upon us night time has come and through the course of the day there's so many moods come through don't they it's the same for all of us. 
feeling energized, feeling dazed and weary, feeling inspired and enthusiastic, keen and attentive, feeling miserable and helpless. Feeling confident, keen, alert, feeling doubtful and threatened and feeling like a great spiritual warrior, pinpointed, resolute, nibbana or bust. (laughs) Nothing will, my blood can dry up, my bones will turn to dust, nothing will stop me. Then, you know, five minutes later, When's that bell going to ring? <laughs> what am I doing here? Why do I do this to myself? There's so many moods and feelings. Um, waves of happiness and inspiration or grief and, and, uh, and loss. Peace and ease. Rages of self-justification and uh, annoyance. Whatever our, our kind of mind and body throw up, whatever they present, this is what flows through, just like the course of a day. You know, what happened in Massachusetts today? Everything did. <laughs> Those animals and birds and insects. You know, what are the, of all the bacteria in the, in the, in the ground being, you know, around IMS been doing today? There's a lot been happening around here. Grass growing, bacteria multiplying, dying. All of the spiders spinning their webs, people coming and going in the town. Maybe whole political maneuvers have been going on in Barry that we have absolutely no awareness of. So we use the practice, the, the meditation, to open ourselves, open up the heart to Cultivate a quality of of, uh, of attention and balance, finding that still point in the midst of change, being able to to witness, to know the flow of changes of our moods, or the, the moods of the world around us, different thoughts and feelings. And it's not that you know I, I'm sort of proclaiming there is a still point, and you just have to find it, and you think still point, ha! <laughs> it's like which part of the typhoon. <laughs> Is not moving, yeah. but uh, you know, again, another of the things that uh, is important to emphasize in the, in the spirit of Buddhist teachings. Not only are they always need to be invited, but also what is said is offered for reflection. That even though myself or Tarnier or Ajahn Punadhamma might sound very confident and assertive and and sort of declaiming from the high seat, you know, ex cathedra statements of yes, this is the truth. We might come across like that. But uh, still the spirit, the fundamental spirit in which uh, any of these uh, teachings are offered is that of being presented or offered for consideration. And that uh, it's up to, to all of you to, to, to listen and to, to see, well, does this, does this make sense? Does it not make sense? Does it match my experience or does it not? Or am I in doubt? And so that we, we listen, we take it all in, and that which we find to be useful and good, then we take that and use it. That which we find that is, is wrong, doesn't fit our experience, or is not helpful, then we leave that aside. And, and that which we are in doubt about, then you just sort of file under, put on the don't know shelf. It's always good to have a very large mystery shelf. Don't know. I'll keep an eye on that one, see, what, see where it goes. And when we use the word meditation, it, it can mean a lot of different things. And probably with a you know hundred people in this room, we have probably a hundred different versions. Probably each of us have a we <laughs> have a little selection within ourselves of what we mean by that. Many years ago, um, when Ajahn Chah was. Uh, Still uh, healthy and um, and teaching in Thailand uh, back in the uh, in the seven, in the uh, 
I think his incident took place in the mid seventies, early seventies. And uh, one day, this this man um, came to visit Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery. And uh, he was uh, from Europe, and he had um, he was an academic, and he was traveling around all the different sages and gurus and uh, teachers in in Asia, you know, those are uh, teachers of note, and asking them a series of questions. And then he was writing up all the responses, recording everything and writing up all the responses, and this was you know, turning this into a great thesis on the um, different teachings and practices of all the great spiritual masters of, of the age. And uh, he was extremely serious and, and uh, intent, you know, and had been to many, many places already before he went to visit Ajahn Chah. And um, usually when Ajahn Chah encountered uh, any uh, any kind of academic or people whose main focus on, on uh, life was, was conceptual knowledge, um, he used to give them uh, quite uh, a, a hard time, to put it politely. <laughs> because his main intent was always to try and to help people to use Dhamma teachings or, or uh, spiritual teachings as a way to free themselves rather than just having a, a, an idea about freedom or a, a kind of concept or a beautiful map. Uh, he'd say, well, you know, take the map and use it, make the journey. And he'd often use the example of it, said, you know, just to have conceptual knowledge is like uh, of Dhamma, of, of Buddhist teachings. So it's like the, the ladle that's in the soup pot. It actually lives in the soup pot. It's in the soup pot, or it's immersed in the soup, but it can't taste the soup. So this is what it's like if you're in the university, or you're, you know, you just read books about meditation or about about Buddhist philosophy or, or spiritual teachings. Yeah, if you if you just study them and gather ideas and concepts and and collect the maps, but you never actually apply it. It's like the the, the ladle in the soup pot. It never gets to taste. It never knows the taste of freedom. Or another example he used with a, a um, uh, in when he was uh, visiting England and, and he was giving some teachings uh, in Oxford at uh, a, a, a very um, uh, sincere and, and uh, committed Buddhist uh, uh, woman, um, but with a bit of an academic <laughs> inclination, <laughs> was asking him some questions about Dhamma, and he said. And uh, he said, "Well, you know, studying Dhamma without practicing it is like it's you know you raise chickens, and then you you look after them carefully and you feed them and you provide them with water and you protect them and you, you know build them a nice coop, and then you just collect the chicken shit, <laughs> and you leave the eggs." You know. <laughs> So he he could kind of come. He could uh, use his rustic background <laughs> to great effect when he wished to. He could also be extraordinarily p- sort of polite and charming and appropriate. But he would call upon his um, sort of barnyard <laughs> background and the earthiness of northeast Thai um, teachings if he if he so chose. So anyway, this. Uh, I think um, Ajahn Pasno, the, the co-abbot at Abhayagiri, was actually there when this exchange took place. And, and Ajahn Chah uh, really hammed it up. And, and, and this guy kept um, uh, asking his questions. Or you know, he had this, um, this series of questions, and Ajahn, Ajahn Pasno would translate them. And Ajahn Chah kept refusing to answer the questions. He kept sort of going off on digressions. And... Um, uh, and so that, uh, as you know, you you are, might well be aware, you know, having spent the day, uh, you know, a very long day, you know, just sitting, and you know, people have these you know padded zabutons and, and whole arrays of cushions and props. For, uh, so there, you know, in, in Thailand, back in the old days, you know, <laughs> then. Uh, all you had to sit on would be just like a thin grass mat on a on a hard sort of concrete or lino floor, and so um, this guy uh, was was already pretty uncomfortable, sort of changing his posture on one side and the other, and uncrossing and crossing his legs, and 
And you know, Ajahn Chah kept, you know, kept giving him the runaround. And, and no matter how, how many times he keep trying to get back to the questions, these important questions about meditation, Ajahn Chah would say, oh yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's an important question. And then, <laughs> go off on a complete tangent. And, uh, and this uh, fellow was uh, eventually losing his patience quite, quite radically. And Ajahn Chah sort of had him on the go for two or three hours. And then finally he said, so, no, so, uh, so what was your questions? Yeah, I've forgotten. Yeah, uh, can, you, can you tell me them again? And, you know, so that, uh, and well, he wouldn't do this just because he liked to bait people or just for the sheer hell of giving somebody a bad time. But he would be um, using it as a way of holding up a mirror. Or you're asking about meditation, you want to know about peace. Okay, how are you dealing with discomfort in your body? How are you dealing with someone you know, dodging your questions? Or how are you dealing with someone seemingly supposed to be an intelligent and wise and skillful teacher and seems to be constantly wandering off the point? How are you handling this, friend? <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't spell that out, but he would uh, see if you would you, you could get the point. So eventually, um, and he was still kind of in his his hamming it, hamming up mode. And so as he said, so the three questions are: Why do you meditate? How do you meditate? And what are the results of your meditation? Just, oh, these are really good. They are very good questions. They're very good questions. Because that, actually that reminds me of a conversation I had once with... <laughs> Went off again on a tangent. And, the, and then he could see the guy was really getting a bit... Uh, it was approaching meltdown. So he said, yeah, I do have trouble with remembering these, but maybe I, I can get a... You know, and one of the novices can get me and get me some you know, pen and some paper and I can kind of write these down. So sent the novice off to, to get... <laughs> Go off to the office and come up with a pen and paper, and then and had um, uh, and had him repeat them slowly as he kind of wrote them down one by one. So about four hours had gone by 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 the time he actually had sort of the, the written questions in front of him, and that uh, finally he said, "Okay, so in response to your questions, I would like to ask you three questions in return." Right. Okay. So my three questions are, why do you eat? How do you eat? And what is the result of you having eaten? That's your entire response to my questions after all this time. <laughs> he says, yes, yes, that's all I have to say. I want you to tell me. Yeah. Can you tell me? Why do you eat? How do you eat? And what's the result of having uh, of you having eaten? So uh, at this point the fellow really lost it. Said, I've been traveling all over the country and it takes a great deal of effort coming up here to Ubon. I had to come stay on the train all night long and and suffer through the sort of heat and mosquitoes and you know I'm very sincere and I've been you know, all over India and all over Burma and all over Thailand and it takes it take me a great deal of trouble to gather all this information, and, and you know I, I just feel that you're really not taking me seriously. He says, "Oh no, no, I, you misunderstand. I'm taking you extremely seriously, but um, the way I am doing that is to help you to see, you know, help you to really make use of all this knowledge that you're gathering. Because what is the point?" Of, of gathering all this information about meditation techniques if you don't really understand you know, what the whole thing is about. So what he pointed to was, uh, in that, his questions. And, and he could see that no matter how much he was trying to nudge the fellow to actually respond, that he didn't really get it. And he said, so the reason why I ask you why do you eat? How do you eat? And what's the result of you having eaten? It's because we take meditation to be you know, some kind of special external thing that we take on, something that is uh, you know, uh, abnormal or, or unique uh, in life. But in fact, you know, meditation is uh, 
is as important to us and as natural to us as breathing or eating and so essential to life. It's not, uh, it's not something which is like an optional extra that you can choose to tack on to the edges of your life. But in reality, it's uh, what we call meditation is pointing to that which is the, um, the most essential element of true life itself. So it's very easy for us to, and and and, and uh, I think that the, um, as he began to explain, and and that uh, the translators could sort of <laughs> could uh, convey a little bit of that spirit. He began to to get the point. He was a bit frustrated at not getting a nice straight answer <laughs> to add to his list of of answers. But what Ajahn Chah was more in, interested in doing was opening up in him the a. Uh, uh, a greater sense of, of what meditation is and what it's for. And the fact that it's, we, we may think of meditation as being the exercises of, say, mindfulness of breathing or walking meditation or whatever, but just as, well, we eat to be alive. We don't eat just so that we can eat. I mean, we might, well, we might do. <laughs> Probably the, you know, if this was a, a, a kind of a, a conference of, of a cuisinier, Cordon Bleu chefs, if we were having a kind of a cookery conference, <laughs> then maybe he'd say, what do you mean we don't, you know, we don't eat just to eat? Of course we do. And the nutrition and staying alive is just a kind of a strange little side effect of eating. <laughs> kind of insignificant little element uh, that we don't really need to bother about because the main thing about eating is what it tastes like. <laughs> but uh, from, the, from the Buddhist point of view, from the more sort of spiritual point of view, and the natural, sort of common sense point of view is we eat to stay alive, we eat to, to live. That's why we, that's why we eat, is that because um, the body, uh, uh, to keep the body alive, so that life can happen. And how we eat, we, you know, we, we gather food and we consume it. We, uh, we put it in our mouth and consume it. And then the result of our having eaten is that life continues. We have that, that, that energy, that capacity, you know, that, that real life carries on. So in a similar way, we, we, it's helpful to expand the view uh, of what we think of as meditation. Because we can, we can put a huge amount of, of, of hours and great sincerity and, and application into meditation, you know, and and I know certainly I've done this myself for, for long years, and and maybe many of you have have been on dozens, um, perhaps hundreds of, of retreats, spent thousands, tens of thousands of hours, you know, following you know faithfully and diligently uh, med- different meditation techniques, you know, mindfulness of breathing, body sweeping. I met years ago um, when I was. Uh, in uh, in Thailand, I met a guy who uh, who came through our, our monastery, Wat Pananachar, in northeast Thailand, and uh, he just finished his ninety fifth Goenka retreat. He was just racking them up, <laughs> and he he wasn't slowing down. It was just like he was just sort of, yeah. so you know whatever our, the the kind of meditation practice that we we do. We can become very expert at it. We can you know, have thousands, tens of thousands of hours on the cushion, you know, kind of proudly show, you know, displaying the patches on our on our on our zafus or on our backsides, you know, wearing out your uh, your your cushions, or the, uh, the the walking meditation path, which is now a deep trench. <laughs> and and it's not as though we might not get you know, good results or, or helpful results from. Uh, committed practice, but what can easily happen is that we um, we forget why we're doing this in the first place. We forget you know, what's the point of the uh, of it. Just like you know, why do you eat? It's like well, you eat to stay alive. Well, why do we meditate? Well, do we meditate in order to become able simply to stay to follow our breath? I mean, it's in, in a way, it's like being a kind of um, you know, if we're trying to turn ourselves into a cardiogram or a, you know, or a, 
um, breath meter, just sort of tracking the, the in and the out breath as it comes in and goes out. You know, is that something that's sort of, that is intrinsically exalted or liberating? Just to be able to follow the, the breath entering and leaving the body or the heartbeat or, or to be walking back and forth. These are, are what we would call skillful means. But the, what I, the reason why I'm saying this is that we can lose sight of the fact that these are not an end in themselves. We get so involved in the technique and the, and the doingness of meditation. And, we've, and we can be coming from a, a place of great sincerity and commitment really trying our hardest. And, you know, as I say, I've done this myself <laughs> numerous years. And you forget what the point was. You know, you know that feeling? You forget why you signed up for this thing? <laughs> because, and you get so involved in the mechanics of it, in the process, that you, you forget. You can, we lose what it was all for in the first place. Like you know, signing up for a university degree. You know, that you... You forget why you wanted to get the qualification because you, you know, we get so wrapped up in the particular courses and the particular ideas and department politics and so on and so on and so on. So it's that kind of pulling our head up, <laughs> raising our head up and, and looking around. And Ajahn Chah would always emphasize that you know, the, the point of meditation, any kind of technique, and he taught many, many different kinds of, uh, of uh, practices, techniques, was the true goal of, of spiritual life is simply peace. This is the, the purpose of it. The, when the heart is, is truly attuned to the way things are, then the result of that is, is peace, which you can call uh, nibbana, nirvana, uh, in, uh, in Buddhist terminology, but it's simply that uh, that quality of near the heart truly at ease uh, and attuned to life, not contending with anything, not running away from anything, not not uh, blindly chasing after anything, but sensitive and attuned to the way things are, and alert, awake, but wholly at peace. So there's also a, a verse that uh, uh, he would often quote also um, as many, many um, Buddhist teachers will refer to in the Dhammapada, which is like a collection of the essential teachings of the Buddha, where he says, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. And when he says the mindful never die, it doesn't mean that the, bo- the bodies don't drop. <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that uh, if you're mindful, then you know, you'll, uh, the body will stay alive for eternity. That's not, that's not what it means. But it means that when there's true mindfulness, then there's a, 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 an understanding or an awakening to that dimension of, of, uh, of our being, of the way things are, that is unborn, undying, that is timeless, deathless. Now these are just words, you know, you say deathless or the unborn or unconditioned, nibbana. These are just sort of Buddhist uh, terminology, uh, words that we use. So this is the, uh, you know, the, the ladle <laughs> in the pot. We have these words or these ideas. And, uh, but the point of meditation and the practices of meditation, like mindfulness of breathing, walking meditation, development of insight, and all the other different techniques we might use, body sweeping, mindfulness of, of the body, um, and so forth, these are all uh, skillful means to kind of get the, <laughs> the ladle into the pot, you know, the soup into the ladle, and then the, to, to taste the, the soup for ourselves, to to know what that, that taste of, of freedom is like, so we don't have to wonder, well, what, he says deathless. That's kind of a weird word. What does that mean? Did he say deathless or deafness? <laughs> Mindfulness is a... You know, this, is this microphone working? Like in that, that famous uh, movie, The Life of Brian, 
this little essay on the, kind of, there's all sorts of uh, little um, commentaries on the the, uh, the principle of religions. It's uh, you know, which it applies as much to Buddhism and <laughs> as it does to Christianity or other religions. But uh, those of you who might have seen the movie, it's uh, at the uh, early on in the film. There's a scene at the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus has just said, you know, "Blessed are the peacemakers." And the people at the back, not blessed with a PA system at that time, say, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> blessed are the cheesemakers. And then, and, and this is and, and one of the, uh, one of those kind of perfectly framed moments where, and exactly how you know, all religions tend to work is that no sooner has the person misheard it than the guy next to him is saying, well, of course, when he says cheesemakers, he's really referring to everybody who works in the dairy industry. <laughs> you know, you've got a commentator coming up with some logic that makes the whole thing hang together. You know. So that's how it can be. You know, that, uh, so that the point is not just to go on hearsay or... Um, and, and and reasoning and, and just sort of coming up with an idea or a pattern that sort of makes the whole thing hold together in our own little sort of favorite conceptual universe. But to use the the, the practices, the teachings, the, the ways of, of training ourselves to explore, to discover, to investigate, um, and to, to see you know, for ourselves. To, to taste it for ourselves. So what is when he says peace? What does that mean? What does that? What qualities does that have? When when they talk about getting beyond doubt, what does that mean? When we talk about focusing or you know the mind being attentive, what does that mean? Or awareness, what is that? So we begin to know and and experience those qualities uh, directly, so that we are able to. Uh, to not just be relying on on uh, outside influences or ideas, but we know for ourselves because once we've tasted that that soup, we tasted the the uh, the thing for ourselves. Then we don't have to ask anybody else. We don't have to say, "Was it sweet or is it sour? Is it rich? Is it thick or is it thin?" We know because it's it's uh, our own experience has told us. So I bring this up so that we are, because during the course of this time, we're already bringing forth different kinds of techniques. And I'd certainly encourage you know, people, everyone applying yourselves with great sincerity to the different practices. But just to bear in mind that these are not an end in, itself, an end in themselves. The point about mindfulness of breathing is not to become an expert breather, you know, or the kind of the flawless monitor of every in-breath and out-breath. We're not doing it in order just to be able to monitor our breath or to, 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 to track every footstep or to, uh, to taste every flavor that goes through our mouth when we drink a cup of tea or, or eat a bean shoot. <laughs> you know, there are, there are mechanical devices that can do this for us. Um, you know, that, but they are, these are useful, skillful means that, that have a, an end. And what we find is that that sometimes over, we've, we've been doing this for so many years, we've become so sort of habituated and have invested the methodology with so much uh, importance that, um, that, we re- that we have forgotten kind of what it was all for in the first place. But yet, uh, so we we've, might have devel- actually developed a lot of expertise, but yet not uh, reaping the fruits of that. And again, Ajahn Chah would say, this is like, like, like the chicken example, you know, raising the chickens. Or that he would say, like, plant, you plant an orchard and you look after the trees and they bear all this fruit, but you, you, never, you never eat it. You never benefit from the, the very fruits that you've cultivated. So uh, in this way, that um, I just want to encourage that sense of using these practices and techniques and methods, but to remember, to, uh, to bear in mind that this is, this is all for the, the, the purpose of liberating the heart for the discovery of true peacefulness and, and ease, the heart which is uh, not contending with anything.
Uh, today we were speaking in terms of how do we meditate. <laughs> today we were talking, uh, in, these, in these first few days, we'll probably be stressing mostly the qualities of concentration and focusing our attention. And so that uh, for those of you who might be you know, less familiar with, with um, this kind of meditation practice or, or um, Buddhist uh, teachings meditation at all, um, it should be borne in mind that this, this, uh, the methodology of concentration whereby one's bringing one's attention to a single point, like say the, f- the feeling of the feet touching the ground as we walk, or uh, the beautiful analogy that uh, Ajahn Puna was giving today about you know tracking the breath uh, as you uh, you attend when you're cutting a uh, cutting a piece of wood with a saw that you the 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 trick with sawing wood is that you keep the attention right where the teeth of the saw hit the wood that's the place to attend to so that in that process of we're we're deliberately narrowing the focus you know, we're consciously excluding all the things I've got to take care of after the retreat's over and all of the unfinished business with my, you know, my family uh, that sort of happened last week and you know, all of the other uh, noises in the room and around us. We're deliberately saying, not right now, later, which incidentally is a very good method for <laughs> dealing with distracting influences. Rather than get out of here, just say, later. It's uh, remarkable uh, how often things okay, <laughs> but I'll be back. <laughs> so there's a deliberate uh, laying aside, a pushing aside of of those other influences, uh, our moods and feelings, um, the other things that are going on in the room around us, or in the space in the uh, in the in the woods or the field, the gardens around us. But that that laying aside or that that tightening of the focus is for a particular purpose. As we've been saying, it's for training the attention to rest with the present moment, to be able to uh, attune the the attention to the here and now, which is where reality lies. You know, you, you can't, um, no matter how hard we we think about the past or the future and conjure that up, you can't go and live there. <laughs> the body is always in the present moment. So it's a short, you know, that, that's why we use it as a meditation object, because the body doesn't wander off into the past and future, no matter how many science fiction novels we might read or how much we fantasize, the body is always here. So we, we narrow the focus and we attend to the, to the body, the feeling of the feet or the breath, to train that, the, 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 the mind to attend to a simple, neutral object, and to let, train the attention to rest here and now in this present moment. So that it's not that those other thoughts or feelings, the, those other perceptions of the people around us and the things that we, we, we live with, it's not that they don't matter or they're insignificant. It's not simply, oh, well, that just doesn't belong and I have to get rid of that, that thought or that feeling. Um, and that's just an intrusion on the meditation. Um, it's simply that for the purpose of, of schooling the attention to, to stay with a single object, then for that time, then we lay everything else aside. And as the, the, uh, the week progresses, and uh, we settle a little bit more into, the, into being together and into the rhythm of the days and into the, uh, the meditation practice, then we find that as the attention um, is trained and is able to rest more and more fully and completely with the present moment, then we we no longer need to have such a, a tight focus. We don't need to have the anchor so um, firmly embedded in the in the uh, in the the, uh, the the seabed. You know that we don't have to have the the uh, the chain. So tight, because the 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 ship is stable. You know, it's not being um, drifting around here, there, and everywhere. So that uh, as we are um, able to sustain attention without such a a strong uh, 
uh, fixed reference point, then we begin to to open the attention to allow in the different uh, sounds that we hear or the different feelings in the body or the different trains of, of thought or feeling or mood that that arise within our uh, awareness. During the course of a, a retreat like this, it's totally normal for uh, when we, uh, we are sort of still and we uh, bring our, our attention inward, that a lot of things come up. You know, oftentimes in our, our ordinary, the flow of our ordinary days, we keep so busy that all of the, the unattended issues of our life are, are happily sort of kept, you know, kept in the cupboards because <laughs> I haven't got time for them. So we just got to keep them stacked up, piled in the corners, put away in the cupboards, and then, then when we sort of stop, and there's, uh, there's no one to converse with, no other things to distract our attention, and the encouragement is to, to look within then all that stuff that is stacked in the cupboards and lying around in piles on the floor, we <laughs> well, that starts to, to get, catch our attention. So we might have uh, you know, memories of, of past conflicts or um, unrequited loves or hates, um, plans that we have for the, for the future, um, you know, maybe you know, all kinds of different things that come up with this, uh, physical problems, different sort of, uh, issues with our health or people that are close to us, loved ones that are sort of falling apart or, or ourselves that are falling apart or uh, or incipient marriages. You know, maybe some of you are just planning to <laughs> get married in the near future or incipient divorces, you know. And, you know, it's just, this is our life, right? Uh, travels, uh, commitments, building projects, whatever it might be. So it's completely natural for those things, that, particularly that are emotionally loaded, to start coming into our minds. So along with the, the skillful means of saying, not right now, you know, later, you know, which, is, which is completely uh, appropriate, there can be a time when the, when the attention is stable enough to say, please, come in. Unrequited romances, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Gnawing doubts, yes, please, <laughs> come in. Plans for the future, uh, conflicts, delights, uh, ecstasies, whatever it might be, to uh, th- there uh, once the um, the clarity of focus is established, then we uh, are using just whatever the fabric of the moment happens to be. We use the framework of the retreat and the routine and the precepts that we're all living under to provide a safe container so there's like a good solid crucible that you can let all of the, uh, the, the chemicals, the kind of fizzy acids and <laughs> bubbling uh, you know, fumes to, to, uh, to do their thing in. The crucible is very trustworthy and solid and can contain it all. But we are, are not sort of in, in, intrinsically shutting anything out so that uh, as things arise, uh, whether they are extremely wholesome, like the mind becomes very concentrated and clear, we experience very powerful focus and blissful feelings, or whether the, the mind becomes you know, uh, distracted or obsessed with a you know, particular thought or impassioned with some kind of massive ins- inspiration or, or um, some kind of major emotional meltdown and we're overwhelmed with grief and, and loss. Whatever it might be, or something, as I was saying, you know, the utterly mediocre, like the completely nondescript feelings of ho-humness, like utter mediocrity, overwhelmed by my complete ordinariness. <laughs> I, I am the average person. There had to be one on this planet, and I am it. I'm so completely unremarkable. You know, I am Jane Q. Person herself. Whatever it might be, we allow all of that that in, and to know it, to know those perceptions and impressions and thoughts, feelings for what they are. Now, again, neither of these particular techniques, either say focusing on a single point and excluding things in order to establish attention, or and concentration or um, opening up the attention and allowing everything in to to flow through 
our awareness without uh, snagging the, uh, letting the attention snag on to any particular object. These are, uh, again, these are methods, these are techniques, and the point is not just to be able to perfect these as, as abilities, Rather like playing the, a musical instrument, or playing the piano. It's not you don't play the piano in order to be able to to strike the keys and even make the notes. We play music to arrive at the effect that the music has on the heart when we hear it. I often like to point that out to people. We don't actually like music. We like where the music takes us to. That's what we listen to music for. We don't actually listen to music for the notes. Really, right? We we listen to it to because of that place. It that to you, you know, he's using a figure of speech that the, the music takes us to. So similarly, the point of the meditation is not the techniques and how we perfect them, but where the meditation takes us to. So that using that uh, the latter particular technique was what we. Uh, we call insight meditation or developing kind of uh, bare awareness, bare attention or, or uh, uh, open awareness, these kind of terms. And we, use, we can use particular tools. And again, these, these are our sort of classical expressions that the, the Buddha employed, um, tools that we can use to help support that, that openness and that unentanglement of the attention with particular objects. And you'll be hearing uh, probably all of us speak on these, and they, they appear in the, the morning chanting, uh, as we'll do tomorrow. And these are the reflections on uh, uh, on impermanence or transiency, uncertainty, anicca, and then on unsatisfactoriness, that uh, the feeling of the, or the recognition that. Yeah, that all experiences, just as we can say that everything in, in, the, in nature, mental or physical, is transient, is changing, modulating. That uh, unsatisfactoriness is to the reflection that no thing can permanently please us. No, no experience, no, no mind state, no object that we possess, no quality of the world can be constantly pleasing. Just no thing in nature has that capacity to do that. You might think, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> so maybe during this, this day, the Buddha Dhamma is a, a way of exploration and analysis, vibhajyavada. So we, we can look and analyze it for ourselves. So you can maybe, if you want a little bit of sort of legal distraction, you can say, okay, I'm going to try and find at least one thing that is permanently satisfactory. <laughs> So good luck. <laughs> but uh, the suggestion is that no matter how hard we try, even something that is in, is totally blissful and pleasant in its in the experience of it, that is completely satisfying, and probably all of us have had some incident, some element of our life where that we felt completely fulfilled, completely happy, completely content. But it, the and you might think that the Buddha's being a sourpuss of. To say no, yeah, no, everything is unsatisfactory, or nothing can really please us. You say, well, I can remember <laughs> there was that day, that moment. But if you notice, like uh, the um, uh, the Greek word nostalgia, and uh, and people who know Greek can probably correct me here. Nostalgia literally means homesickness. It means that that kind of longing for home that we we are. It was a beautiful moment. It was perfect. But when the moment is over, then all the moments that come after are kind of not quite, just like that perfect day, <laughs> that perfect moment, that time when our friendship was just at its, at its peak. Everything was just right. And so it's not to say that that isn't that kind of per- perfect deliciousness of that moment, but then it's like the memory of that and thinking of that can bring up a sense of separation, of loss. So that perfection is not here now. We're, we're homesick for that, that beauty. So that uh, it's to reflect and explore in this way, to see that no matter... Uh, where, and then, of course, if things are painful or disappointing or nondescript in their presence, then you can also reflect on them as 
unsatisfying. And the third quality is that of anatta, or not-self. So whereas anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, might be a little, you know, fairly easy to sort of chew on and, and get a, a, a sense for, oftentimes the, the, the quality of anatta is, is a bit mysterious. We don't, can't quite figure out what that's about, or we see all things are not-self. Just as the other two characteristics of all existent things, impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, okay, maybe we can get that, but not-self. How can this thought not be me and mine? How could this body is who I am? This body is me. This personality, this memory, these ideas. No one else has this memory. This is my memory. But these are not sort of uh, metaphysical statements or kind of uh, emphatic statements or, or beliefs, but they're tools to explore our experience with. So when we say, this is my thought, what do we mean by that? When we say this is my emotion or my feeling or I am, this is my body, what do we mean by that? So the reflection on anatta is to, a way of exploring that feeling of meanness and minus, the feeling of ownership. If this is my body, what is the thing that owns the body? This is my thought, my mood. What is it? What is that quality that's doing the owning? And we're using these, these tools to, to reflect on the flow of thought and experience, perception, mood, sensation, as these, they arise in, our, in consciousness, in our awareness, so that then by using those reflections we're much more able to sustain a, a quality of, uh, of detachment, so that rather than the mind latching on to a, my memory, my idea, my plan, then there's a, oh, well, no, it's just a memory, it's just a thought, it's a feeling, it's a mood. It says mine, but that mindness is also just arising, doing its thing, ceasing. We begin to see that no matter whether something is labeled as inside or outside, mine or yours or the world, that those are somewhat arbitrary designations, relative determinations. And that and we use the meditation or insight practice on the basis of concentration and this quality of insight or, or open awareness where we'll be able to see that you know, everything that is experienced is simply a quality of nature that comes into being, crystallizes, does its thing and dissolves in an unrelenting motion. And that the heart can be fully at ease, resting in an awareness of that, knowing that. And that the more we train the heart to, to rest in that quality of awareness, of knowing, vijja or panya, wisdom, then the more fully we are able to experience the quality of true peacefulness, true ease, that it's the, and again I don't want to be sort of polemical or, or kind of uh, say this is the way it is, but this is, this is an opportunity during this week to discover, is this the case? You know, when we let go of the I-ness and me-ness and you-ness and it-ness of what we perceive, and we just allow the heart to know the, the flow of nature, does life get more peaceful? Do we feel more in harmony with things? Is there a, 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 a richness that we experience with, our, with our, our passing hours? What do we find? So this is an opportunity to explore, but uh, just you know, from my experience, uh, is that there's a very direct relationship, and that the more there is that capacity to to not allow uh, to not become entangled, caught in our impulses and aversions, opinions and loves and hates and perceptions, the more that the heart rests in that. Uh, established in that quality of, of pure awareness, knowing, the more ease and peace, uh, the more delight we experience in the way things are. And even if what's being experienced is kind of bitter and painful, it's like a sour taste, or a, a, an, a, an emotion of grief or loss, or a kind of painful emotion, in that moment we know that it's absolutely all right. It's painful, but there's nothing wrong. And so this is really the source of peace, the source of, of real ease and clarity in our life, 
it's not with wiping out all of the nasty influences, like kind of removing all the mosquitoes from the atmosphere and <laughs> always making the temperature just how I like it. <laughs> it's not like removing all of the irritants. But it's, it's uh, finding that place in the heart where we realize, oh yeah, rustly nylon jackets, part of nature. <laughs> this sniffle in my, this tickle in my nose, this sniffle, it's part of nature. This blissful feeling, it's part of nature. This weariness, this kind of confused, dull swimming in my head, it's part of nature. So that uh, we're not making everything sort of fit an idea of perfection, but we're finding that place where we recognize that everything belongs. Everything is part of nature. And that's the source of peace. That's where, where our um, true contentment and joy in life comes from. But we're not trying to straighten out every detail of the world to fit my plan. You know, we do a little arranging, <laughs> have a routine and precepts and things. We set things... Uh, set things up in, a, in the best way we can to support peacefulness. But the real peace comes from that attitude of, of uh, attention and acceptance and, and realization that everything is Dhamma, everything is an attribute of nature. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <laughs>